0: Hello! Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together, we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Today, my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Blakelock, a champion of the rights of everyone to have access to a warm and safe home. She is passionate about tracking the impact that firms' decision-making has on people's lives. Then she uses that data to help design essential service markets that are inclusive by design. Elizabeth has been working in the corporate world as an academic, the charity sector, and as an energy regulator. As an academic, Elizabeth co-authored the report Fairness in UK Energy Markets, and in 2020, she finished her PhD on how powerful ideas influence the rules of the energy market to undermine processes that were supposed to ensure inclusive policymaking. Elizabeth, welcome and congratulations on your PhD. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, uh, for being here with me today. So, Elizabeth, your work is about advocacy for policy processes that, I quote, embed empathy. You dedicate your time to making sure that policies and company processes engage directly with people and hear their lived experiences. Why and how did you decide to embrace this career path?
1: Well, there are two reasons, really. Um, the first is is very much the the moral and ethical case about putting lived experience at the heart of decision making, reflecting that that universal right to be safe and warm in our homes. I mean, it's it's such a crucial right to our well being, and that it's even recognised by the UN. Um, and the reason that I focused a lot of my my career in that space actually came from when I was growing up. So my mum was in very closely involved in in work about financial exclusion and what that meant was some of my earliest memories are kind of photocopying grant bids to to help with with local charities that could be so transformative for people's lives so the second is on the a much more practical point. So I'm a very pragmatic person, um, and we know we've got these expectations of an enormous amount of policy change in in the energy system. So we need to completely transform the energy system. Now I hear people talk about the system, and they mean pipes and wires and generators, you know, all the big kit. And then somewhere along the line there's some users, but we don't really think about that. But what I see when I see energy systems. It's people. I mean, it's people who are choosing where to put those wires. What to put in those pipes, natural gas, hydrogen, and it's people who use energy in very different ways to meet their diverse needs. So without expectations, which are based on the real lived experience of people, how on earth do you make those decisions about how we're going to do this transformational work? And what I mean by lived experiences is moving on beyond modelled or or predicted or, or even wished for experiences or ways that people would behave but actually looking at the way that people do really make their decisions to make sure that we won't have any any kind of exclusions as we move forward because if we're going to have any kind of transitions never mind just transition that we need and we need to make sure that everyone can contribute
0: Indeed, I wanted to ask you about this term, just transition, that is, it's in everybody's mouth. But do you think the current system can allow this transition to happen or is justice, social justice, just an afterthought? What are the main obstacles that you have been witnessing through your work, either for companies or or regulators or, or consumer champions or as an academic?
1: It's actually remarkably consistent across all of those areas what the three core barriers to a just transition are in terms of the energy markets and their operations. Um, Financial barriers, barriers in terms of accessibility um, and inclusions of groups which we haven't traditionally um, focused on gathering data about. So I'll start with the financial. So this is very straightforward. Everyone's home is going to have to change. And I really do mean everyone. Even early adopters of technology um, will have to adapt to new signals um, about shifting their energy demand as we move forward. And what that means on a very practical level is that people are going to need new equipment in their homes, particularly batteries. Um, And here in the UK, um, we're expecting to need a, a great uptake of heat pumps. Now, what that practically means is that people have to have tens of thousands of pounds to be able to commit to installing that equipment. Now, we know in the UK, there's a very small proportion of people who will have that in savings. So what will need to happen is finance. But the sector that we look to to provide that finance make extensive use of credit scores. That's taking into account people's history of their ability to pay for credit. But we're in a time now after the COVID crisis where people's household budgets have really been pushed to the edge. So even if we were ever in a world where there were many people with positive credit scores that would be offered the loans to be able to install this kit, we're certainly not not in that world now. So I'm very concerned about the financial barrier that will be in place to stop a just transition. The second one is more on the accessibility and this is an area where there's been a great deal of work um, in energy firms and innovators, but much more significantly in the UK, at least in the financial sector. And this is about making sure that products and propositions are inclusive by design. Now, what that means practically is instead of developing a product that is for a perfect customer that's in your imagination you engage directly with people and their needs to make sure it matches how they would prefer and how they need to access things now that is particularly important for people um, who have got disabilities who that shapes the needs that they have when they're engaging with a product or proposition. So I'm disabled um, and I have a heat pump. I can't interact with it in any way. Um, I can't access it because my mobility is very constrained. Um, I can't see any of the displays on it. I can't even get to it because of the way it's positioned. So my only way to interact with my heat pump is to turn my fuses on the inside of my home off and on again. I'm also severely dyslexic and dyspraxic, so I'd like to be able to read the manual that comes with my heat pump to see, well, what is going wrong with it? that I would even need to go anywhere near it physically. And it's incredibly difficult for me to make head nor tail of this enormous document in tiny print. So those are just my accessibility barriers as someone who's remarkably privileged in the position that I'm in um, as I engage with this heat pump. But there are many more challenges that are faced by people who um, need lots of different types of um, of communication routes. Um, Now, they're not unknown and they're certainly not barriers which couldn't be overcome. But we need to make sure that there's a really clear expectation on firms that they cannot just simply expect to avoid providing services, whether that's a braille bill or being able to communicate in sign language. These things are going to be needed to make sure that everyone can install the kit that they're going to need to uh, use energy at the right time of day, as well as reduce the amount of energy they're using
0: yeah, and this is very interesting when you put into perspective the aging population because you just think that people's needs will change also over time. So it means that their homes will have to evolve as well. But you had a third point, please yeah. I give you back the book.
1: Thank you. and and you're absolutely right. I mean, when sometimes when just to to your point, sometimes when we talk about accessibility, it comes across to me that there's an expectation that there's this relatively small group of people who need an exceptionally high level of support um, and people can just kind of avoid or firms can avoid selling to them and avoid think- and therefore avoid thinking about those needs. But I've yet to read the research that shows that we are going to stop aging. I believe it's core to the human experience. We will get older and as we get older, our needs will adapt. And the ways that people will want to interact with information in particular may change. And it's not difficult. We're talking about slightly larger text, having plain English standards is the the way we talk about it here in GB. And when those changes are made, research shows again and again, when you make your products more accessible to those um, who have disabilities, you make them more accessible and easy to use for all. So it's very worthwhile work And from a commercial perspective, um, as well as from an ethical one. But on to that final point, and and for me, actually, this this is the most significant um, in terms of of a barrier. um, And that's considering in far more detail the way that we're going to talk and think and gather data to do this just transition um, in a way that doesn't exclude groups of people who have traditionally been excluded. In particular, I'm, I'm really concerned about how we make sure that we include people from ethnic minority groups. Now, that concern um, comes from, from two sources in terms of data. So firstly, the in Great Britain's consumer advocate for energy, Citizens Advice, showed that post-COVID, Black people are, um, are a community who are particularly struggling with their household expenditure after COVID, um, an interaction of financial um, and health vulnerabilities that have meant that that community is particularly at risk. And and Fair by Design um, published a report in February based on academic research from Bristol University showing that ethnic minority groups were systematically being excluded from the best tariffs on the market because of a um, broad range of different factors um, including housing tenure which meant that you were far less likely to be on the cheapest tariff available in the market if you were in an ethnic minority and i am just i'm flabbergasted having spent so many years working on the design on this market that we have managed to get to a place where we haven't captured in the data, the significant disparities between groups based on ethnicity. We've moved forward in terms of making sure we have excellent insight into the way that um, firms are acting to impact people with with health challenges and worked far more to get very close to understanding um, how people's financial lives will impact the way that they can engage in the transition. But I've yet to see the same ambition brought to how we make sure that this just transition is incorporating justice in terms of including ethnic minorities um, as we make these enormous changes and, and go on this journey of building an inclusive energy market. I'm afraid to say that the current marketing arrangements benefit the white, wealthy and healthy and we simply cannot afford to replicate this in our net zero world because there aren't enough of those people to, to bring the reductions in carbon in our homes that we're going to need to see.
0: And why do you think that there is this kind of blindness? Is it because of the decision making itself? Because because the people with companies that try to work on those issues are White, healthy, and wealthy as well, or is it just uh, because our societies are also like structurally not looking at those kind of difficulties? And let's say policies expect us to be just coming in one shape, one model, etc.? We had this conversation a few podcasts ago with uh, Marielle Fenstra about um, energy uh, and feminism. And she raised this issue about the fact that policy don't acknowledge the multiple forms of households or the the fluidity that they are in in the households because of lived experience, as you mentioned. So is there a problem of representation? Is there a problem of simple not wanting to get into this kind of details. I mean, sometimes I feel that this idea of social justice is just a big, beautiful idea, but uh, put in a very nice package and it's an empty, empty present, let's say it this way. So I would love, yeah, to continue the conversation to see how this can happen in real life.
1: Yeah. So I want to go back to this absolutely vital first step of, of putting lived experience at the centre of decision making. That means in terms of how you've, you've described that is, is actually, I'm going to divide it into two things, which is you mentioned decision makers there and, and who they are and what lived experience they bring. Um, and we know that there is a very long journey to go on and um, to make sure that there's a people who are promoted, who are recruited, who are bringing their diverse experiences as a professional person in the energy sector. That will be transformative to make sure that when you see the group of people that are making decisions about the future of the energy system, that they reflect the population that they're making those decisions on behalf of. And I'm afraid to say that we've got a very long way to go on that. So just this week, In Great Britain, we had the the publication of the Powerful Women's Report, which shows there's still an enormous disparity in gender. And I'm afraid to say that on other metrics such as ethnicity, we're even further behind. Now, in the civil service, there's been a great push to try and get a more diverse workforce um, here here in Britain. And that's certainly extended to the, the energy regulator. But the pace of change which is needed to move to a net zero society, we we simply can't wait for people to retire um, and then for their place to be filled by by a more um, diverse cohort. So what we need to make sure is that the people who are in place now are listening to lived experience of people across their countries, including people from ethnic minorities. And when you say, you know, what is the where might that gap have, have come from, and and is it possibly linked to, to the fact that social justice is often seen as an ideal rather than a set of practical proposals. I would completely agree. So there is an absolute need for social justice not to be seen as separate, different, or not the job of energy um, decision makers. It's, there is so much more to the energy system than technical decisions about moving electrons along a wire. Its society is surrounding the energy system. It is embedded in the energy system. There is no separation practically at any level. They are the one and the same. So to be able to meaningfully engage with the way that people are going to make decisions about energy will be the same as they make decisions about any other thing. It needs to respond to their identity and their lived experience. And that means that we need to understand how those things are playing through and decision makers who are ready to listen to those experiences, who are committing resources to collecting the data that reflects those lived experiences are going to be the first step And I'm afraid to say that I do still hear many people narrate an expectation that there's a a social policy focus on social justice, which is somehow separate from the the technical delivery of net zero. Um, And I think that really undermines the opportunity that we need to take up to make sure that everyone can get involved.
0: I totally agree with you and uh, you're making such an important, relevant point that it's not only about the policymakers, but it's also about the people who are implementing the technology. It's also about the engineers or the, uh, the construction companies as well to reflect and to report on the situation that they see in real life, because at the end of the day, energy is what we need. It's something so essential within uh, for our daily lives. And, and we have seen that during the COVID lockdowns, that without energy, we couldn't work, we couldn't study for school, we couldn't feel warm at home, and we couldn't go beyond. Our daily lives is now all centered around energy, but I feel that energy is not centered around our daily lives. And how do you think that we we could transform this challenge into, let's say, an opportunity for consumers, for, for citizens? Because certain people don't like the term energy consumers. They say consumers are citizens with rights. We have to be acknowledged as a part of the big society, a part of the democracy, etc so how do you see what kind of opportunities do you do you see for for companies for regulators for consumers for citizens to overcome this situation?
1: yeah, so I think there is a, an, an enormous opportunity to close the gap between people and decision makers and I, I include people who are delivering products in, in firms. They are absolutely making decisions which impact the energy transition. Um, so the first is the the tools that are available to directly engage with the public. So we've seen that the take up um, here um, in the UK of a citizen jury for climate change. Um, and there, that was a group of members of the public who, who spent the time deliberating around all of the such detailed, um, important questions um, to make their recommendations to policy makers in the UK government. But it's also been replicated, I've seen, more and more at the local level. So so local governments engaging um, directly with people in the local area using the tool of a citizen jury. Importantly, though, the outcomes of those tools have to actually be applied they have to be used you know we can't have this situation where we have the theatre of participation without then listening and acting on the basis of those recommendations and the next thing really is is for regulators for government and for firms to take far more in Seriously, um, inclusive design. So, the idea that you make sure at the start of the design process, you have people involved with a wide variety of needs. Where that has been applied, inclusive design principles, the outcomes have been systematically positive. And just to reiterate, and not only for people with significant support needs. differentiated support needs in any way, but for all of the people who are impacted by that policy or by that product. That will help lock in so much more richness of people's experiences into those decisions. And that will help close the gap between this false gap that's articulated between energy in some way independent from society, because you have real people at the beginning setting out their experience.
0: And how do you I think that one of the questions that might come very often is how do you recruit these people to be part of citizen juries or on these, let's say, panels uh, that will help with the designing projects that are inclusive. I suppose that it's a question that energy companies can ask themselves, how much do people want to be involved in this kind of decision process? But you seem to have very good examples of times where it worked and with uh, success stories as well. So uh, what would you recommend for companies to set up this kind of uh, frameworks?
1: there are specific groups who are um, set up exactly to do that to do the the recruitment much like you would recruit research participants as an academic and to connect people who are ready to listen to those people who have got experiences that need to be heard Um, and there are a wide variety of of people who, who are in that space and what it means really is that the decision maker is willing to commit the budget to make sure that, that event, the event occurs um, and that people are incentivized to join and to share their experiences and to really value them. Now, when I've spoken to people who have participated in, in such events, they have reported quite consistently how rewarding it is to have their experiences really listened to, not just because they then get to deliver that challenging message to a decision maker, but because of the knowledge that you're helping making things better for people who come after you, which of course is such a motivating force for people across society. And I think it's a really important point to highlight that when we think of ourselves as individuals and and how we want to play a role in this transition, I expect that the listeners of this podcast might be particularly engaged in the topics that we're talking about. But there's a real breadth of ways that people can get involved. You can absolutely volunteer to be a participant in a citizen jury and and commit that significant amount of time. You might also feel safe to attend protests and and marches to, to make the case for justice, for energy justice and for an inclusive transition. But there's also many other tools that people have at their fingertips that they can use to highlight the need for a just transition, particularly on social media that can be relatively a much a relatively small amount of time. Um, but also in in that um, interaction with firms um, to highlight that there is that it's important to you that they take their sustainability criteria seriously. It's not always going to be the Achievable for everyone to to march every march or, or spend um, a great deal of their evenings at a at a panel to discuss uh, to deliberate um on change. but I hope that there's um, small practical things um like engaging on social media that are accessible to many of us and certainly to people who are who are connected to your podcast.
0: Yeah, I think we have quite a nice database of people who are interested in these questions and would be uh, willing to participate in these platforms. And now it's uh, about firms. Uh, If any firm is is listening now, uh, we would be really interested in hearing how you plan to implement those kind of uh, citizen juries or or panels of discussion? Because that would be uh, really a nice way to respond to this uh, to this uh, lovely conversation. So you have such a broad experience. You have gathered so much interesting data. Uh, do you? expectation or recommendations on what our societies could do. I mean, either from the academic point of view, the academic community, or as the general population, what can we do to become allies? What can we do apart from marching? What can we do? Is it about uh, switching suppliers, taking for one that takes better into account uh, the the variety of, of needs? Is it about switching to, let's say, energy communities or a cooperative? Or what can we do?
1: So as an academic, I think for me that the first step is to revisit the data we're collecting and the communities that are recognised in that data. Um, I think it's time that we adopt an explicitly anti-racist frame um, and to go out of our way to make sure um, that people from ethnic minority groups are recognised in our data and that we're capturing it at a detailed enough level. So in the past, I've certainly been part of research projects and, and indeed commissioned them where we've used a, a grouping methodology. So we talked about BAME communities, and it was only as part of my own personal anti-racist journey um, that I read the, the experiences of people who, who said, you know, that's it's just completely inappropriate. And when I thought about it, of course, it's completely inappropriate to group together such a large range of experiences. And so why have for years we relied on that as a, as a research category? So to specifically go out of our way to make sure that, especially in our survey data um, and when we're um, looking at the, uh, the different ways of engaging people.
0: Can you please clarify what BAME is for our non-native listeners?
1: Yeah, so that's Black, Asian and minority ethnic groups.
0: Yeah, indeed, it's very, 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 very broad. Very, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and yet... Most research, if it connects to ethnic minorities at all, that use, uses that category. Now, that's certainly a huge opportunity for those of us who are connected to fuel poverty research, because the housing data um, in, in the UK has historically been much more granular in terms of ethnicity and outcomes in housing. So we have that fantastically rich data. Also in terms of when we're thinking about the outcomes of, of people not being able to afford energy in terms of health, again, very clear and, and more detailed in terms of ethnicity. So really it's it's well overdue um, that that when we're talking and thinking about energy, that we get to that, that level of granularity in our research. And not only will that make sure that we're making sure that lived experience is at the center of our research, it will also open up the opportunity to understand how these things intersect. So intersectionality as well as um, individual characteristics. So for example, um, although I do have some barriers in the energy market and in society around being disabled, I'm white and and therefore my my experiences of disability will be incredibly different from someone that I will be connected to through my you know my disability network who's black. It's just there's no that we can't even start that work without this basic foundation of data, and it's absolutely crucial to understand um how the intersection of different identities, and characteristics is translating into your lived experience of energy, just as it is in broader social research.
0: This is so interesting as some, many, many countries do not even collect data on ethnicity or this kind of experience. And we see how useful that would be not for, let's say, only for granular analysis of the population, but also to help target program and strategies towards inclusive societies. So mm. that's really interesting to see that this could start to happen first in the UK and maybe that would uh, also spread to other countries. I would be really, really curious to see how the development of, of this particular point So what that
1: means for me in terms of kind of beyond academic life is is to pick up on that point. So there is not only this gap here in the UK where we've had a long history of looking at energy affordability and fuel poverty in in academic research and feeding in directly in to the programmes that are meant to to challenge those difficulties. We can blaze a trail then that that is available to countries across the world to say this is a way of, of thinking, of doing. Thinking about the problem, collecting data, and then basing our decision making on it. But you don't have to be an academic to call for that kind of proactive intervention. Anyone can make the case that the energy decision making at every level, whether it's governments, local communities, firms, or regulators, we can call on all of those decision makers to make sure that lived experience is at the heart of the decisions that we're making. That might be um, through exercising your your rights in terms of, of voting and on the political level. It might be in terms of you challenging the firms that you use to be um, much more mindful about justice, in particular about justice to excluded groups, um, or it might be much more on the local level where you're doing what you can to bring communities together um, and make sure that we have inclusive groups fighting for justice.
0: I agree with you, and uh, the decision makers are accountable for this fairness. It's totally part of our uh, democracy, it's part of our societies. And if we want just uh, net zero transition, if we want societies to be much better. In the, in the coming years, in the next 50 years, we have to acknowledge this kind of points. It's not only about limiting the, the amount of CO2 that we will be spending, but it's also about making sure that everybody has their voice and can express their voice and can, can share the experience and can be listened to. Is there anything that you would like to add about this, about, uh, about the accountability, Elizabeth?
1: I think really the next step around accountability is to draw the line between the moral argument to the practical argument. We cannot afford to exclude any community from this transition. We will all need to take steps to move to a place where the planet remains habitable. And that means that any success is based on putting lived experience at the heart of decision making. Can I give people a reading list? Yeah, that would be fantastic. So one practical thing that we can all do is engage with the publications that are already setting out how we could do these changes. Um, And I have to say that at the top of my pile um, is a book by Jenny Stevens called Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. Now, I've got one more. It's more um, specific to countries where um, there is a a liberalised energy sector. So, there's a significant amount of firms interacting with their regulators. And that is a fantastic resource about doing the work of being inclusive by design, which sets out the problems, but also provides a toolkit. um, And that's published by Fair by Design in partnership with the Money Advice Trust.
0: So let's make this uh, just transition about the heart and not only about the head. Is that right?
1: That's a fantastic summary. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Elisabeth. I loved our conversation. and really enjoyed it. So I hope our listeners will have uh, enjoyed this as well. It's been fantastic to have you with me uh, at Energetic today. I wish you a very, very nice weekend because we are on a Friday. And uh, I hope to talk with you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.